population is growing exponentially. Food production only grows linearly. When they cross, we got ourselves a crisis. Hello, nice to meet you. My name is Thomas Malthus. I'm an English old demographer. My sad predictions make me quite unpopular. Don't you know our planet will be doomed at this current rate that the population's doomed? Only three things can be done to slow it down. War, disease, and the plants turning brown. I'm here to tell you... Hello, K-Squid listeners, and welcome to Sustainability Now. That was the Malthusian Catastrophe Rap by Jordan White, a human geography and history teacher in Duluth, Georgia. You can find his YouTube channel by going on to YouTube and looking for Jordan White, Malthusian Catastrophe Rap. Well, you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. Abortion is in the news, and nowadays one's political affiliation is often a clue to one's position on abortion and vice versa although not in Kansas. But this was not always the case. During the 1950s and into the 1970s, Republicans were often supporters of abortion as a form of family planning, especially in developing countries, but in the United States too. And they were, at the time, allies of many environmentalists who were worried about the so-called population explosion. My guest today is Dr. Carolyn Tracy, who I believe recently received her PhD in geography from UC Berkeley. We'll check with her on that. On June 18th, she published an essay in the San Francisco Chronicle with a title, How My Republican Grandfather Helped Legalize Abortion. In the article, she recounted the relationship more than 50 years ago amongst Republicans, environmentalists, and abortion. While there's a tendency to regard those Republicans, such as Nelson Rockefeller, for those of you who might remember him, as moderates or even liberals, they were strongly influenced by fears of communism, the so-called population explosion, and a, what they saw feared was a looming shortage of food worldwide. Now, communism did not exist in 1798 when the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus first published his essay on the principle of population, which was what that introductory song was about. Yet those Republicans and others were committed to his arguments about the poor and population increases. And those beliefs and arguments continue 225 years later to infuse political discourse. Well, Carolyn Tracy, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Welcome to Sustainability Now. It's a timely topic, to say the least, but not well known to the general public. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. So why don't you start by telling us something about yourself? Are you a newly minted Berkeley PhD? And in what field? Yes, I am. Um, it's only been a few times that I've been referred to as Dr. Caroline Tracy, so it's a little bit thrilling. I finished my PhD in human geography this spring in May, and um, I wrote my thesis actually about deportation and return migration and um, how people make lives in Mexico after return migrating or being deported. Um, so my focus was on the border and migration and um, the geography of the American West and the ways that it plays into those dynamics. And well, what are you doing now? Are you, are you still in California or have you departed for other parts? I now live in Tucson and I work oh, as a journalist. Oh. So I work four days a week at the High Country News, which is oh. a magazine that covers the U.S. West. Yes. And I specifically cover climate justice. And then on a 
sort of more part-time basis, I work at Zocalo Public Square, which is where uh-huh. my essay initially appeared, and then it was reprinted in the San Francisco Chronicle, like you mentioned. Yeah. And there we we focus on a kind of a marketplace of ideas about bringing, bringing lots of new research and uh, innovative thinking to a general audience. Well, I can say I read the, the Zocalo Public Square every, every Sunday morning while I'm having coffee. Um, and the High Country News is a pretty uh, impressive place to be. So what prompted you to write the piece? Maybe you can also tell us what was in it. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. The essay is one that I had thought about writing a few years ago when my grandfather died because as a result of studying geography, I had learned um, some things that had helped me answer a question that I had had for a long time, which was, why did my grandfather, who was a Republican environmentalist, essentially that was his career path um, in the state legislature in Colorado, why was this um, thing that seemed unusual in his path, which was having helped legalize abortion and make Colorado the first state to do so, why was that part of, how did that make sense in his career trajectory? And I started to learn about the ways that the ideas of Thomas Malthus um, had had recurred in the United States in the 20th century. And so what's in the essay is um, first about what my grandfather's role in Colorado politics was, and then what were the intellectual ideas that shaped him. So a a big influence for him was Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, and that came out in the 60s. Um, and it was part of a big zeitgeist of of thinking and concern about global population growth that uh, some scholars have characterized as as neo neo-Malthusian, which I guess we can get into here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, go ahead and tell us what neo-Malthusian means. Sure. <laughs> um, I guess maybe it would be useful to start with what is Malthusian. Um, well, Maybe can I should I start there? I mean, you could even start with who was Thomas Malthus, although I can fill that one in too. Yeah, well, I can tell you what I know. You okay. might you might have more to fill in. Right. Um, Malthus was a English professor of political economy uh, in the late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century, and he published a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population. Uh, initially in 1798, but there were six six editions in his lifetime, so he revised it, I guess, obsessively, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And the book had two, he called them postulata. Uh, one, one is that food is necessary for existence, and the other is that reproduction is necessary, or, or reproduction is inevitable. Passion is inevitable, in fact. And the the problem that he saw is that population grows geometrically, it grows exponentially, and food can only grow, according to him, arithmetically. You can just add more land, but you can't increase the productivity of the land. And of course, he couldn't anticipate the Green Revolution or many of the technological advances in in crop science that we live with today. Um, But he, because of those postulata, believed that there would be checks on the population growth that as as humans continued to reproduce uh, famine would would necessarily stop that growth uh, that was naturally growing geometrically 
My my sort of recollection of this is um, is that he was writing, sort of looking out his window and seeing poor people wandering about the neighborhood. Um, do, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, that's my understanding as well. That you know there wasn't really demographic data at that time. That was something that was new in the twentieth century, and so he was really responding to an increased visibility of the poor and. And that came from, I think, mainly from changes in the economy, uh, from new urbanization and industrialization that also in Britain had enclosure as, of land. So the denial of, of public or communal farming grounds uh, kicked a lot of people out of their livelihoods. And so they were pushed into slums that were in the service of new industrializing cities and um, or, or sort of proto-industrializing cities, and and suddenly the poor were more visible, whereas maybe they had been farmers before or peasants. Well, I, I, some number of them had, I believe, been involved in the putting out system, which was basically they were doing weaving and, you know, whatever it is, whatever is required to make cloth, um, at, at doing that at home and with industrialization and factories, all of that could be centralized. So... So they either had to migrate to where the factories were or they had to find another way to make a living. But, but it was that they were looking for work um, and it was the first, I think, example of a phenomenon. Sorry, I'm lecturing about this, but um, uh, people migrating from rural areas where there was no work to urban areas where there, there was, hopefully, employment. Um, so, I mean, he, you know, he sort of got it wrong in the sense of he thought that the poor were just simply reproducing uncontrollably, and that was why so many people were wandering around. Um, you wrote in your article that historian Thomas Robertson argued that the origins of the U.S. environmental movement lie not in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, but in a revival and reinvention of the ideas of Thomas Malthus. So how were his ideas reinvented and by whom? Yeah, this um, book that I referenced, I think, uh, at length in my in my essay was really interesting to me and really helpful in, in thinking about the problem that I mentioned before about how do you square this environmentalism with uh, helping pass abortion legislation. And so he argues, like that quotation says, that rather than focusing on Silent Spring and DDT and chemicals as the origins of the American environmental movement, Actually, earlier than that, people were worried about population growth and they were making environmental arguments about population growth. And so he and, and some other scholars as well uh, have, have argued that basically at the early 20th century when they do have demographic data and also there is also a renewed sort of visibility of population in the form of the world wars and concerns that uh, overpopulation was a factor in starting these wars. Um, there are everyone from, uh, you know, politicians to population biologists or, or ecologists, lots of ecologists, I guess, um, start to be concerned that these concepts apply to human population growth and, and the global population. I think, you know, Malthus didn't have the, the ability to think at a global scale in the same way once they have data and once they have a more interconnected world. So that's one of the big changes from 
Malthusianism to neo-Malthusianism is that it becomes a concern about not England, but the whole world and the resources of the whole world. And then the other is that there's this concept of carrying capacity that gets added. And that's something that I think gets largely developed in the United States. Uh, well, can you say more about that one? For sure, yeah. Um, I, I guess carrying capacity is a concept that I was taught about for the first time in biology in ninth grade, so maybe some, <laughs> some other people were as well. And uh, what, I, what I remember from that class is that the teacher drew a curve on the, on the board, which was sort of you have a population of a, you know, an animal, uh, and, and then it grows because, like Malthus says, it grows exponentially. And it, and it reaches a point where it has no more resources, it's consumed all the resources, and then it plunges, and, and it, it plummets to a very low level, and, and then it comes, it, it comes back and stabilizes, but at a lower level. And so the, the argument, you know, the, the way I was taught was there had been a, a previous carrying capacity, sort of like a dotted line of the, the, the level at which the population could be stable. They had surpassed it. That was why they had plummeted. And then they stabilized at a new carrying capacity, which was lower because they sort of ruined the ecosystem and it couldn't support as many species. And, and so that, that idea is what these biologists and others who are writing books in the 1950s and 1960s, well, really the 1940s through the 1960s are, are referring to, but they're referring to it on a, on a global human scale in a way that doesn't have a lot of empirical basis. And um, in, the, in the essay, I, I talked about an article that, that Nathan Sayre, who was actually my PhD advisor at, at Berkeley, wrote, um, which is about the history of this concept, which again, it was sort of a revelatory article for me because carrying capacity was something that I had learned about uh, in my education. And it was really fascinating to see it historicized. And, um, and so he argues that it, it emerges as a way to measure how much cargo ships can carry. And then in the 1920s, it becomes used by wildlife biologists in right, the U.S., yeah. so famously Aldo Leopold, who mm -hmm. um, may be familiar, I guess, to, to some. Um, he's working in New Mexico. There's, there's a, an isolated mesa, and, and there's a big elk die-off because... In, in fact, the elk do consume all the resources on this isolated mesa. And this curve that I was taught about in ninth grade biology basically comes out of that, that elk die-off. Um, and, and, but then there's a very quick jump um, by, by some of these population biologists in the 1940s and 1950s to, to applying it to um, human population on a global scale. So I believe that... Uh, the book Road to Survival by William Vogt, 19, in, which comes out in 1948. I believe that's, that's one of the, the most famous ones where, where that link is made. And he's an ornithologist, but he's writing about human population on a global scale. I wanted to, to pursue that population biology notion because, of course, um, part of the reason that you get population growth in the species is that there's a lot of food and of course food varies seasonally depending on weather and rain and all those kinds of things um, and so it's not a kind of a necessarily inevitable outcome I think it's it's just what was observed by Aldo Leopold and other 
population biologists. And it's, it is interesting that the scientists who were the advocates of this particular perspective, um, not, none of them actually knew very much about human social uh, affairs and relationships. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's very interesting. And, you know, one telling trajectory is that William Vogt, who I was just mentioning, he publishes a book in 1948. And three years later, he get, gets appointed as the national director of Planned Parenthood. And oh, so wow. you see this political coming together of population biology and, and uh, reproductive politics in a very clear way, I think, in his in his professional trajectory. I mean, I should note, of course, that in the aftermath of, of World War II and the, uh, you know, the victory over Japan with the atomic bombings, scientists had very, very high credibility, which is something that seems to be an issue nowadays. But, but basically, um, someone like him would have been appointed you know, head of Planned Parenthood because of his visibility and authority. Um, but I wanted to go back for a moment because... Um, there is also a connection here with with the eugenics movement. I think, back in at the at the you know beginning in the the turn of the twentieth century, and then uh, probably through the beginning of World War One. Do, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I think it is absolutely a, a an important factor in people's thinking about the importance of uh, birth control and reproductive autonomy. But I, it's it's not the area I know the most about. Um, but I, I think it, it is absolutely there that um, that in more or less implicit or explicit or more or less overt ways uh, in a lot of these early, especially uh, population control movements, there's uh, there are concerns about white supremacy and the loss of what sort of what we would now is it calling what are now people calling the replacement theory. I think it's a very similar dynamic and. And also classism, right? That we're that we're going to be outnumbered by poor people in a same in a very similar way to what to what Malthus was worried about, uh, or you know, I think um, these fears seem to recur politically very often. And, and I think definitely this early twentieth century reproductive politics is is a moment at which they're recurring. And that was that I, I was doing some reading about this, and and it actually came uh, out of social Darwinism, which was of course uh, a perversion of Darwin's series, which which had to do again uh, with the survival, the notion of the survival of the fittest, and that then was brought into arguments about Europe and Europeans, and um, you know the role of Europeans in dominating the world. Um, and then the, the, the fear of, of other peoples somehow overthrowing that particular domination. Um, I also recall that uh, the Rockefeller Foundation was rather active before World War II in this area. Um, unfortunately, I don't know any of the details, but, but are, have you, do you know anything about that? I guess, you know, I, I don't know that much about the Rockefeller Foundation specifically, but I think in sort of the broad stroke trajectory, you start, the neo-Malthusianism starts uh, in in the aftermath of World War One. So in, in the interwar uh-huh. period, as people start to assess, well, what happened and, and why did this happen? And um, for instance, uh, Robertson in his book talks about how uh, 
John Maynard Keynes was worried about the, the role that population growth played in these wars and, and sort of hmm. major figures or, or also, you know, that's the same period as Margaret Sanger is, is promoting birth control. Um, and, and so people start to think about population in that era and then it, it really starts to become more mainstream in the late 1940s at the end of World War II. And I guess the Rockefeller Foundation, um, gosh, I... I wish I knew more about them specifically, but they're very influential in the Green Revolution. Is that right? Yeah, no, they, they were, they were um, sponsoring the research, right? And the Green Revolution right. was the attempt to increase uh, productivity of grains and cereals, mm-hmm. um, right? And again, and I think in response to this fear of food scarcity, which of course was, was driven in part by... Um, ideas about population growth, especially in what we at that, well, came to call the uh, developing world later on, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but I'm, you know, I also have this sort of notion, and, and uh, you know, no one's here to correct me if I'm wrong, but that they were sponsoring some work on, uh, on birth control um, at the time. But, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. So, well, let's get back to the, the post-World War II period. Um, why, why were these scientists so concerned? I mean, what was the political environment in which all of this was taking place? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think the Rockefeller Foundation is part of this as well, is that after World War II, you transition into the Cold War and you start to see population concerns become mainstream as part of anti-communism concerns and and so poverty in the third world becomes a national security issue and 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 i guess for the rockefeller foundation right that's part of the reason that they need to um sponsor food and uh agricultural technology at the same time as as they and, and others including the u.s government are sponsoring birth control both domestically and abroad and and also the you know the more eugenics type of work that uh, that we now know about, right? Like forced sterilizations, again, both domestically and abroad. And um, I think that this concern that poverty is going to make people into communists is is a big driver of a lot of the activity at this period. What you 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 made this point? How how is communism going to make? How is poverty going to make people into communists? I guess the logic was that, you know, if people are going to bed hungry, they're going to want revolution. Um, and, and so the best thing that could be done for them was, was to improve their quality of life in a more capitalist society. I'm, I, that's my interpretation of the logic, at least. Um, well, yeah. you know, of course, yeah, well, of course, the, uh, the, the, the policymakers had the example of the Russian Revolution uh, to look at, right, in which... Um, there was, because it was in the middle of World War I, there were all kinds of, of issues of, you know, provision of basic needs. And I imagine it was an easy jump to say, well, the people rose up and overthrew the empire because they, they lacked those basic necessities, right? So if you, if you have sufficiently inspirational leaders who are promising you uh, pie in the sky, or, or a better future, right? If you, if you adopt or support socialism and communism, that's a, a very attractive proposition. The, 
The thing is, of course, is that poor people rarely have time to engage in revolution. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so let's let's go from go from there then. So what then was the uh, the connection that the, these people drew between that notion of countries going communist and you know access to basic needs and and resources access global access to resources yeah i mean i think that there was this concern about the poor becoming communists on a global scale at the same time as there were domestic changes right there was the the civil rights movement was happening so you have the same phenomenon that uh of, that Malthus was seeing, right, of a real restructuring of society and 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 some reactionary fears there. Um, you see the, you know, in 1965 also they rewrite uh, immigration law in the U.S. So you, you're seeing a lot of societal changes as well as I think in you know what I what I see as the really distinctly Western element here about why is this happening in in Colorado and then in California um, is that you're also seeing a lot of population growth, regional shifts in population in the U.S. And so mm -hmm. I think that these these sort of fears become very present and people don't fully know what to do with them. And uh, and they're in large part reacting to visibility of, of more people and poorer people or more people and people taking advantage of social services or needing them. And, and there are these quick leaps that aren't fully thought out between the poor abroad and the needs domestically. And um, I think family planning becomes kind of considered a panacea, like that it's something that could solve a lot of problems. Uh, at least that becomes the political vision of what could happen. So you see in the 60s, I think from 1965 to 1968, there are congressional hearings about population and what to do about it. And after that, you see both um, the U.S. becomes largest supplier of birth control in the world so it's it's in many countries in the world as well as a, a large increase from around nine million dollars per year of a budget for domestic family planning to a sudden jump to 56 million mm -hmm. um and and i think it's it's a, both a reaction to these global cold war fears and to changes domestically um one of the things I wanted to sort of point out was that, uh, of course, in 1949, uh, the Chinese Communist Party won the Civil War, and um, that was a big, you know, big chunk of the world's population suddenly becoming communist. Um, and then, and then later, uh, only a few years later, the President Truman appointed a blue ribbon commission to look into the problem of of resource supplies, minerals, and other kinds of things. And it was it was sort of characterized as uh, scarcity because supplies would diminish as they were consumed. But the flip side of that was that growing volumes of these minerals were coming from abroad. And so you had, on the one hand, the sort of Malthusian argument about about uh, you know scarcity, and on the other hand, the fear that communist regimes might cut off supplies in order to blackmail. The United States and and Europe, and of course it happened to some degree, but it wasn't because of communists. Um, 
So uh, how did this all connect to early environmentalism? By this, I mean, you know, 1960s. Yeah, well, I think that in Colorado, you see in, in microcosm some of the dynamics that are playing out at the national political scale. So, for instance, um, the Democratic representative that sponsored the bill that um, I write about in my essay that liberalized the Colorado abortion laws is Dick Lamb. Um, he was a young and new representative. And uh, one of the things that he pointed to throughout his life uh, as, as inspiring him to support abortion legislation was that he and his wife traveled to Peru and they saw, they saw a lot of women in a hospital um, that were there because they had had botched abortions. And so I think this sort of bringing the third world home uh, had, had, a, had a role in Colorado state politics as well, not only the way that they were playing out in the congressional level. So that's, that's I think, one important uh, factor here. But I think also what I was mentioning before about the visibility of population growth in Colorado um, and, and across the West, because also you see in California a lot of concerns about population growth and the environment. But in the Denver area, right, in the, in the 1950s, Denver doubles in population. And so there's, there are these close-at-hand fears of population growth. And again, I think it's that the, the legislature, legis, legislators didn't fully know what to do with their concerns about the way the world was changing. Um, and they start to coincide with demands that other groups are making, women's groups, even religious groups, right, um, about the need for family planning and specifically for abortion on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, in my grandfather's case, uh, he was, I think, pretty inspired by the book The Population Bomb, the Paul Ehrlich book, uh, which itself was inspired by you know, a trip to the third world, like a trip right. to India, seeing right. poverty, um, the visibility of poverty. And and in addition to that, I think he also had pretty strong cultural attachments to the wide open spaces of the West. He had grown up on a ranch in Wyoming. And um, in, the, in the essay, I mentioned that I, I tried to send him the article debunking the idea of carrying capacity. And he wrote back refusing to read it because he said he already knew all about carrying capacity because that was a concept that had been used on the ranch in the Forest Service allotments. Hmm. Um, and and it, it was a funny moment for me uh, in thinking about this because he made that direct jump between the Forest Service allotments and the global carrying capacity that the article was, in fact, debunking. Uh, but he didn't, you know, he didn't want to hear it. Uh, and huh. and so I think that there, you know, he was he was inspired by a zeitgeist that uh, that was powerful and that felt very urgent, and that now I think with some hindsight looks rather different, and um and and it looks like it was rather classist and somewhat eugenicist, uh, but I think that it's also true that. The those male legislators, Lamb and my grandfather, um, by virtue of getting involved in abortion liberalization legislation, they started to learn more, and they and it really they sort of passed the baton to the groups that are uh, involved in thinking about women's rights and bodily sovereignty and 
um, and the things that we associate with the abortion movement today. Caroline, you you mentioned that this um, uh, the support for abortion uh, that Dick Lamb, when he was in the state legislature, uh, pushed and and your grandfather supported, uh, came out of I guess concern about amongst people living in Colorado. What what was their sort of added? You, you said Denver doubled in size in the nineteen fifties. Uh, what were people thinking? Yeah, I think that there are a handful of factors, right, that go into this. Um, but one of the main factors is that you start to see a real population shift toward the American West in the post-war period or during World War II and in the post-war period. Um, Colorado and the Front Range, where Denver is, had sort of belated population growth relative to California. So California had really a, a boom in in population during the war period, a lot of the war, wartime factories were there, and and Colorado sees a lot of the federal investment after World War II. So right. you still have a lot of manufacturing that's defense related. In Col- in fact, you have more after the war than you have before. So, um, so Denver increases in size dramatically, very fast, right after World War II. And I think that as it had in California. Um, that triggers a lot of fears about the loss of things that people hold really dear in the American West, the, the, the wide open spaces and the, the feeling that there is space. And so I think that in addition to the global or uh, kind of small g global, uh, the, Amer- the, the discourse about population that's happening all around um, at this at this time, you also have a very Western concern about population growth and a desire to do something about it. And um, I think that both of those fears sort of get channeled into concerns about family planning. And um, it's, but they also don't come out of nowhere. So, um, you know, in my grandfather's case, I can sort of add to the intellectual genealogy that my great grandmother, so my my grandmother's mother. Um, his mother-in-law had been involved from the start of Rocky Mountain Planned Parenthood. So there was a bit of a, um, also a precedent for um, that concern that predates, at least in my family, the um, World War II period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be useful just to, to remind us then uh, about how then that started to intersect with the, you know, merge, emerging environmental movement, which is uh, you know, usually associated with Rachel Carson, and as Thomas Robertson argued, was not. Um, so, what was the connect, the the more direct connection? Well, so yeah, Thomas Robertson, like like we were mentioning earlier, argues that maybe instead of Rachel Carson and the concern about EDT and chemicals in the environment, we should be thinking about the ways that neo neo Malthusians influenced the 20th century uh, environmental movement. And there's another book that I think also speaks to this in a really interesting way, which is called The Bulldozer in the Countryside by Adam Rome. Mm-hmm. And and that's also about how the American environmental movement was shaped by concerns about population growth and, and how uh, a lot of the legislation that gets passed, especially in California, um, like the creation of the Coastal Commission and these other types of protections come out of this post-war period where people were really worried about the changes they were seeing and the, um, the rapid development of the suburbs, the, um, 
yeah, that, you know, probably the increase in traffic, the types of things that people, for instance, in Denver right now, which is undergoing another growth in population, love to complain about. And, um, and it sort of evokes fear and sometimes reactionary politics. And, and in this case, I think the, the fears got, like I said, channeled into family planning, which it had a sort of a mix of both reactionary and forward thinking politics uh, in, in, the, in the form that it took. It becomes very difficult to untangle these different, these different strands. Um, it, well, wh- why don't we talk about the present then? You know how uh, po- population growth is is not um, environmentalists. Many environmentalists don't talk about this anymore, um, and it's now uh, expressed much more. I, I seems to me on the on the right. You know, people who are uh, committed anti-environmentalists, but it it's gotten all tied up then in the politics of of abortion and then women's rights and and the like. So, do we still see this kind of of discourse about uh, Malthusian discourse, neo-Malthusian discourse today? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that is on my mind uh, as someone covering climate change because I think one thing I've noticed is that the way that it does recur is less about population directly. And, and I think there's sort of a neo-neo-Malthusianism <laughs> to some climate change discourse that, that the ways that it's recurred is that we have too many people emitting too much and, and that population is, again, a concern. And part of you know what I mentioned earlier, I've been trying to untangle this question of how abortion and population and environmentalism go together and went together in my grandfather's career. And I think that um, that some of those connections uh, are easily or easy to understand why they might be debunked through climate discourse, right? That I think something that was eye-opening for me as someone who'd definitely been schooled by my grandfather politically and taught to be very concerned about population and its effect on the world was was learning that in terms of carbon emissions, a very small percentage of people are making almost all the emissions, right? You know, it's like something like 97% of the emissions come from the top 3% of consumers and emitters. And and so population really is not the, the key issue here. Uh, and that we need to, to readjust how, how we, how we discursively and actively uh, fight climate change. Right. So I think, that's that's one way I see neo-Malthusianism coming back, um, and and I think that you know in terms of the debates around abortion, in I guess to my mind they are happening at a pretty low level. There's like definitely a very powerful culture war that has uh, consumed the discourse about abortion. That's been hard um, for those who are in favor of abortion rights to fight successfully. Um, That's why we're seeing political outcomes we are, I guess. Um, But I think that one, you know, one way that maybe the neo-Malthusianism comes back again is the, the sort of fears that we're going to have people consuming social services and, uh, and the visibility of the poor. Right. There's an interesting um, tension here 
between what I would call statistics or the the discipline of statistics and uh, the individualization of rights over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, that, that rights have become the property of individuals, whereas statistics are about large numbers, right? I mean, population biologists are not concerned about individual animals or people. They're just looking at, uh, you know, large, large bodies of data, whereas rights, as in the case of abortion rights, are very much about, you know, individual control over, over bodies. And so there's a sort of a divergence there, which strikes me as kind of interesting. And, and, and but you do still see uh, signs of this uh, concern about statistics, so to speak, among in some of the the right wing discourses. You mentioned the great replacement theory, right? But there's there's also a cor- corresponding um, sort of idea that that abortion is also a way of reducing numbers of minority citizens and residents that it's a you know it's a conspiracy by the the white overlords so to speak to uh to make that particular form of of uh population control you know available um so all of these things get really kind of twisted up uh together um, you're mentioning climate change is, is sort of interesting. Can you expand a little bit on that? Sure. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I think in observations I've had, that's one of the places that concerns about population have recurred, right? That I would say before climate change was part of the mainstream discourse, environmental discourse, at least that I can remember because I'm fairly young and it's been yes. present. Um most of my life, I feel like there was a, a feeling of relief that, that we knew that world population was going to go down, that most of these countries were going to re- achieve a, a, two, a, you know, a zero replacement rate or whatever it's called, for fertility right. rate of two. Um, right. and, and so there was sort of a calm. And then I think with, with climate change, there's a new concern that uh, there are too many people and that, you know, there's a discourse that developing countries are going to start emitting at greater and greater rates because there are more and more people and more and more people in the middle class. And there are these very uh, fear-driven arguments about what will happen that I think, like you say, they're not necessarily based in statistics. Uh, well, in fact, they are, right? Because if you if you talk about China... China's emissions in a- aggregate, they're greater than the United States. If you talk about them per capita, they're much, much less because mm-hmm. China is, what, three or four times as populous as the United States. And um, so that's a way of, of um, you know, dealing with the statistics, right, in a different way. It's, it's an aggregation as opposed to the sort of individualization uh, of, of consumption. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, and it's about, you know, I think it's it's just very interesting for me to observe the way that it's it's somehow easier to make this sort of fear-driven leap to even if it's lower per capita right now, it's it's going to grow so significantly um that it will become, you know, par with our consumption. There's I think there's a fear on Americans part or a reluctance to to question our own consumption levels, right? And and the the other statistic, which is that 
the vast majority of us are in the very tiny fraction of, of major consumers and emitters right. and that, that that has really shaped the global climate change landscape. Uh, yeah, yeah. Be, I mean, beginning, beginning back in the, in the 1980s, um, when, uh, when, when the climate, you know, concerns about climate started to emerge on a, on a much broader scale. Caroline, what sorts of work are you planning to do? Are you going to do anything around this issue in your, you know, in your career in the near term? Yeah, I guess it's, it's hard, hard to avoid it because I do think that both, um, you know, the question of abortion rights is, is very present right now this year, of course, and climate change is abidingly important as well. Um, so yes, I guess is the short answer. Right now, working as a climate justice reporter. Oh yeah, tell um, us about that. Yeah, I, I think uh, both these questions are, are, are very much on my mind. Um, I've been here, I'm, I'm here in Southern Arizona, so I've been doing some interviews with uh, women in Mexico who are parts of networks of abortion providers there um, in states both where the laws have been liberalized and where they haven't, mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out how how the cross-border relationship is going to change as uh, as the laws are changing here, because as maybe you know, Arizona has had a challenging time putting its abortion ban into effect because it had two on the books. Um, <laughs> and um, And then in terms of climate justice reporting, I feel like that's in some ways, uh, working against the neo-Malthusianism neo and, and demonstrating that, in fact, uh, the, there are, it's not a, a generalized phenomenon that everyone is feeling the effects of equally because we're all sort of uh, too big of a population, but rather that um, climate change affects different people differently. So I'm just wrapping up a story um, that'll come out uh, in a couple months about um, how manufactured homes uh, are particularly vulnerable to excessive heat and there are really disproportionate statistics about heat related deaths in Arizona. Mm. They, they really, there. I think the statistic is that they're eight more, if you live in a manufactured home, you're eight times more likely to die in an excessive heat event. So um, yeah, that, those are the types of stories that climate justice entails, sort of looking at the the variations in the effects of climate change rather than the, the overall kind of statistical effect. I'm just, I'm just curious, is that because the, uh, the inhabitants of, of mobile homes are more likely to be poor and less likely to have air conditioning? Is that the, the, the connection? That is part of it. There, it's again one of these things where there are a number of factors to untangle. One of the issues is that the construction of the homes themselves is not particularly weatherized, especially older right. homes. Sure. So yeah. homes from before, before 1976 is really the worst. But even before 1990, they're very thin walls and not sufficient weatherization. But then also, yeah, the um, residents of manufactured homes are on average uh, lower income than either owners or renters of, of site-built housing. And, and then there's another wrinkle, which is a particularly um, substantive one that uh, some researchers at Arizona State University uh, sort of uncovered um, by doing comparative mapping, which is that, that residents of trailer parks don't 
have access to a lot of utility assistance programs because those parks are sub-metered. Um, so the, only the park is the direct uh, consumer of the uti- direct customer of the utility. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, even people who could uh, could qualify for utility assistance often cannot get it. And that's a big issue here in Arizona. That, that's, that's because there's one master meter for the whole park, right? For exactly. electricity and, and gas. And then the, the owner of the park sells, I guess, resells the, the electricity and, and gas to the, to the residents. Yeah, they're um, they're they're essentially yeah subcontracted and and they're, they're required by law to sell it sell the electricity at the same price. They can't kind oh, of, oh they, you they know can't. gouge the residents, uh-huh. but uh-huh. Uh, it does it does make it complicated, if not impossible, for residents to get utility assistance. Yeah, well, I want to thank you for being my guest on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a great conversation. Um, you can read more of Carolyn Tracy's writing by following the hyperlinks on the blurb for this broadcast on the K-Squid website. Or, of course, you can always Google Caroline E. Tracy, and uh, she will turn up. She has her own website and um, appears in, in many other places. So once again, Caroline, thank you. Thank you. So thanks for listening. And thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make K-Squid your community radio station and keep it going. And so, until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. is growing exponentially food production only grows linearly when they cross we got ourselves a crisis hello nice to meet you my name is thomas malthus i'm an english old demographer my sad predictions make me quite unpopular don't you know our planet will be doomed at this current rate that the population zoom only three things can be done to slow it down war disease and the plants turning brown I'm here to tell you there's too many babies But all you English folks look at me like I'm crazy All of us will return to farms consistently If the babies keep getting born consistently While I'm sitting and preaching let me tell you more All the problems fall squarely on the poor So if you want to avoid a catastrophe The world's about to hit its carry capacity Hopefully you're on the right side of the J-curve If not, food will be pretty tough to serve Population is growing exponentially Food production only grows linearly When they cross we got ourselves a crisis Goodbye y'all I'm Thomas Malthus